and dismiss the classes off to Sunday school with Jess, please. invite you to take your Bibles this morning again to the book of Acts and Acts 21. When you've uh, found Acts chapter 21, and we're going to read from verse 27 to verse 40, I'm going to invite you again to take your Bibles and stand with me as we read out of respect for God and his word. So please stand. The word of God says, when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who instructs everyone everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And beside, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Tophimus the Ephesian in the city with him, And they thought that Paul had brought him into the temple. And the whole city was provoked, and the people rushed together. And taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. While they were intent on killing him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He immediately took took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to the crowd. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. And the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered that he be bound with two chains. And he began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. And when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be brought into the barracks. When Paul got to the stairs, it came about that he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of people kept following them, shouting away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. But Paul said, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. When he had given him permission... Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand, and when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect. And we'll pick up the rest of that next week. Please have a seat. (laughs) You all want to know what Paul was going to say to the Hebrews? Well, if you're here next Sunday, we'll talk about that. Paul has traveled from Ephesus with eight Gentile Christian brothers to Jerusalem. They've gathered a collection from the Gentile churches for the Jewish church, and he's told the Ephesian elders of the Spirit's testimony to him of trials and afflictions that await him. He's visited several Gentile believers and churches along the way who've pleaded with him not to come to Jerusalem, but Paul has arrived in Jerusalem with those eight Christian Gentile brothers. He's arrived into a particularly tense set of circumstances. Felix, the Roman procurator, has brutally crushed several recent Jewish nationalist uprisings. The Judaistic priests and high priests and Pharisees and Sadducees, they're still angry at Paul for his conversion to Christ. 
And the Asian Jews has, have spread rumors all over Jerusalem that Paul preaches against the Jews, against the law, and against the temple. And the Jewish believers themselves, who are zealous for the law, have doubts and concerns about Paul's true loyalties. And the leadership of the Jerusalem church, having received the Gentiles' church's gift without any recorded comment, and knowing of the Jewish believers' concerns, they've told Paul to go and purify himself and pay the cost for the completion of those four men's vows. And in verse 26, Luke records Paul's intention to participate in the sacrifice to be offered at the conclusion of their most likely Nazarite vow. Paul has submitted to their unwise command. He has, as James Montgomery Boyce states it, begun to compromise the gospel. The days until the offering of the sacrifice pass, and just prior to their completion, perhaps on the seventh day itself, Paul goes into the temple. We're not told what he was thinking or saying or doing there, but from Acts 21 and verse 27 to the end of that section, verse 40, one thing is certain. God delivers Paul from his own dangerous compromise, from the temple and its obsolete worship practices, and from the Jews' false accusations and desire to kill him. And God delivers Paul into the Romans' custodies where, as we'll see in a few weeks, God will open doors for Paul to communicate the gospel to the Jewish leadership and kings, to Roman soldiers, even the Praetorian Guard, and even to Roman governors and kings. Paul's ministry is far from over, and God delivers him. God intervened and protected and delivered Paul through some very painful moments, and it's God's magnificent grace to him to do so. I understand there was a lot of uh, conversation last Sunday after the service. Uh, we were here till late. It must have been 1.30 or more before we finally all left here. And people were talking about the sermon. I know some of you may not agree with my perspective on this, and that's okay. Uh, Victor pointed out to me after the service the irony that the promised trials, afflictions, and chains that Paul's friends were afraid of turned out to be God's means of grace towards Paul. On uh, Tuesday, we had our Zoom Bible study, and there's a, a record show up of people, and Kathy commented in our study that just as the violent raging of the storm was God's grace to Jonah to deliver him from his disobedience, so also the chains were God's grace to Paul. And there's all sorts of examples of that reality in Scripture, and we'll see a few of them a bit in a little while. God delivered his faithful, scarred, and battered servant and brothers and sisters, I want us all to know this morning, God is still able to deliver us from our difficult circumstances. And perhaps that's your situation this morning. You're caught between the proverbial rock and a hard place. Maybe you've become entangled in some sin, some bad habit, some compromise of your own. And you sense that you're stuck there and there's no way out that you can see. But I want us all to know that the one and only true God, the almighty, all-knowing, unchanging God, is able to deliver us. God is faithful in all his workings toward us, with perfect timing, with providential working, and with magnificent grace toward us day in and day out. So let's consider God's deliverance of Paul and ourselves from the text of Scripture. 
I want you to notice, first of all, that God's deliverance is faithful. God, Paul, sorry, has begun to make a mistake to compromise the gospel. Yet, God is faithful. God's faithful to us is not like our faithfulness to him. Our faithfulness shifts and changes with each change in our circumstance, doesn't it? One day we're all fired up and faithful to the Lord because everything is going our way. And the next day when things aren't going our way, all of a sudden our faithfulness is slipping back a little bit. But the wonderful truth is God's faithfulness is absolutely faithful. God's faithfulness is based on his infinite, eternal, unchanging character. Listen to how the Bible describes the faithfulness of God. In Numbers 23, verse 19, the Bible says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? In Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, the Bible says, Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. God is faithful. And we all know that wonderful passage in Lamentations chapter 3, don't we? The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, Jeremiah writes. In Romans 3, verses 3 to 4, Paul asks, What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. And Paul Paul himself, riding from prison years after this, at the end of his journey, he's about to be headed to be beheaded for his faith. And he's, he's finished that journey that he began on the Damascus Road. And this is what he writes. And it's probably a Christian hymn that he's quoting, but this is what he says. It's a trustworthy statement. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, he, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless... He remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Even when we stumble and fall and fail, and we all do that, God remains faithful to us, his covenant people. When Peter stumbled and fell denying Christ, Christ was faithful to him to restore him. When Paul here stumbled heading towards a compromise, Christ remained faithful to him to rescue him and deliver him and continue to use this very human of his servants. God uses weak and broken and failing vessels because it's all he's got, you and I. God continued to use David after his fall and restoration. God greatly used Peter again after his stumble and fall. And God will continue to use Paul to bear witness to Christ and the gospel. God will still use Paul after his deliverance to write Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and First and Second Timothy and Titus and Philemon. God will yet use Paul to the saving of the souls of some of the Praetorian guard. But first, God comes and in faithfulness, he rescues him. Our God is a faithful God, brothers and sisters. Praise God that he is a faithful God. Rescuing us in those moments. I want you to notice, secondly, that God's deliverance is timely. In verse 28 and 30 to 30, before Paul could participate in that planned and notified sacrificial offering, God delivered him through the enraged Jews, grabbing him and dragging him out. 
In verse 31, while the, Paul, the Jews are beating on Paul, all of a sudden the Romans come stomping up and they stop beating. And God delivers Paul through the Romans' arrival in the nick of time, so to speak. There's other examples of God's timely deliverance. Remember 1 Samuel 25? Before David could succeed in killing the foolish Nabal, God delivered him through Abigail's intervention and entreaty. In Genesis 22, before Abraham could cut the throat of his beloved, long-awaited-for son Isaac, God delivered him from that situation by speaking from heaven, by staying his hand, and providing a substitute for Isaac in the ram caught in the thicket. And sometimes, before we go too far, God steps in and intervenes and delivers us. A phone call, unexpected visit, a change in circumstances. I was thinking about this as we were working away uh, throughout the week. Many business people, how many of them on the 11th of September 2001 cursed their bad luck, quote unquote, because they'd missed the train, they'd lost their way. They were late for work or an appointment in the Twin Towers or they'd missed the United Airlines Flight 93 from Newark, New Jersey, only to realize hours later that God had delivered them in a timely manner. God is able to deliver us. You say, hold on a second. Wait a minute. What about those who, instead of being delivered, went through 9-11? Or who were actually martyred for their faith? Or who actually succeeded in the sin that, which they were intending? What about God's deliverance of them? Of us? Of me? Of you? My answer is that God's word absolutely convinces me that our God is absolutely good. He's absolutely faithful. He's absolutely righteous, holy, and just. Our God is all-knowing. He knows everything, past and present, future, possible, and actual. He knows in some situations, for our greater good and his glory, it is better that we endure the hardship and the difficulty than experience his deliverance. That's a tough pill to choke down. But it's true. Years later, after Paul finished his race, God delivered him from this difficult life to glory through a Roman sword blow to behead him. God knows what he is doing. I was trying to think of a way to kind of get it across to our hearts because that's a tough thing to figure out. It's like a father who knows his child and knows what's going on and he catches the child in a sin and he knows it's far better to obey the scriptures and apply the rod of correction to that little boy or little girl's uh, hindquarters in that moment to correct and discipline and train. It's better for him in the future. It will bring glory to God than allow that child to continue unchecked in its wild and rebellious and disobedient behavior. And so he allows some difficult circumstances. God delivers. Our God is able to deliver. God delivered Paul in his faithfulness to him. God delivered Paul from compromise, from the Jews, from the temple, from death in a timely manner. Our God is able to deliver us in a timely manner also. And when God does not act, or God does not deliver us, which does happen, we recognize that he is still acting in faithfulness because he has our greater good and his own ultimate glory in mind. So, so what do we do in response? We trust him 
and wait for his deliverance. Isn't it great? We, we are so omniscient, aren't we? We know when God should act. It's a long time before he does, usually. Or maybe sometimes it's we, we're so surprised when God acts. But we've all got it figured out, don't we? <laughs> it's true. God should intervene right about now or now or now. And, and we wait. And God's timing is perfect. And then when we get beyond that situation and we turn around and we look back and we think, you know, if God had acted when we thought was the right time, it would have ended disastrously. But God acts perfectly in his timing. God delivers in perfect timing. Notice thirdly, God's deliverance is providential. Notice in the text... Paul does almost nothing by his own volition. He's in the temple. That's all we know. That's kind of his one action. He goes in there. Notice all the actions done to Paul. He was seen in the temple and seized by the Asian Jews. He was falsely accused of preaching against the Jews, the law, and the temple. In verse 29, he's been seen by the Romans with Trophimus in the city. It was assumed that he brought Greeks into the temple and defiled it, which he hadn't. In verse 30, Paul was taken hold of, dragged out of the temple. In verse 32, Paul was being beaten by the Jews who wanted to kill him. In verse 33, Paul was taken hold of by the commander in order to be bound with two chains, likely one chain to one soldier and one chain to another soldier on either side of him. In verse 34, Paul was ordered brought into the barracks. In verse 35, Paul had to be carried by soldiers to escape the enraged mob. It's not until, I think, verse 37 that Paul finally speaks all the way from verse 13 to verse 37. He's not recorded, actual speech recorded, written down. That's the first time he speaks. That's recorded. Paul is the object of everybody else's actions for the bulk of the story. Paul is being delivered by God's providential actions through both the Jews and the Romans, delivered from his compromise by the Jews, delivered from the temple and its obsolete old covenant worship practices, delivered from the Jews and their murderous intentions by the Romans who intervene and chain him, eventually deciding to flog the truth out of him. Paul is delivered into the chains of freedom. And there's other examples all through the Bible. In Jacob's life, God used first Laban, then Joseph's reported death to deliver him in part from his lying and scheming. In the nation of Israel's life, God used Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian armies to deliver the Jews from the land and their habitual idolatry. After the exile in Babylon, they never returned to idolatry. God uses all sorts of means and ways. He uses all kinds of people in our lives, people who like us and people who don't. Situations that are great and comfortable and situations that are terrible and unpleasant and uncomfortable. God uses all sorts of means to bring about his work in our lives. God had not left Paul alone. God was still at work in his life. Brother and sister, whatever you're going through, Whatever difficulty you're encountering, I assure you on the authority of Scripture, God has not forgotten and he is still working in your life. He works providentially. You say, what is providentially? What does that mean? What's providence? I'll give you the scriptural support first and then I'll give you a statement of faith, a statement about it. Psalm 135 verse 6, the Bible says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven, in earth, in the seas, in all the deeps. Isaiah 46, verses 9 to 11, God is speaking. Remember the former things, long past, 
For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Romans 8, verse 28, we all, that great verse we all know. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You know what most of us actually believe about that verse? God causes some things to work together for our good. Well, you know, God causes a handful of things to work together for our good. All the things I like. But no, that's not what Paul said. It's not what the Spirit of God wrote. He said, God causes all things to work together for good. In Colossians 1, verses 15 to 17, He, that's Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heavens, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created together. Sorry, try that again. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He, the Son of God, in Hebrews 1 verse 3, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. To summarize it, whatever God pleases to do, he does. Whatever God purposes, he accomplishes. God causes all things to work together for our good, and Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. God's providence is his working according to his holy, wise, and perfect power to accomplish all that he designed for you and I through uh, the creation and the works of providence. So let me give you the the exact uh, London Baptist Confession of Faith, because I just butchered it by trying to remember it. London Baptist Confession of Faith describes God's providence as, quote, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence to the end for which they were created according to God's infallible foreknowledge and the free and unchangeable counsel of his own will to the praise of of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy, close quote. What did that mean for Paul? What does it mean for us? God was working providentially, using the Jews and their murderous intent to deliver Paul. God was working providentially, using the Romans and their flog-first, ask-questions-later approach to deliver Paul. And listen, God is working in your life through every circumstance in which you find yourself to bring about his purposes for you, which are for your good and his glory. God is working providentially in your life and mine to bring about the end for which he created us. God works through friends and family, those who like us and those who don't. God works through cranky neighbors, nasty bosses, and ungodly governments. He works through good health and poor health and no health. He works through financial success and financial failure. He works through hard times and good times. Although I would add, 
I give thanks to God, and I encourage you to do the same. For the hard times that God takes us through, they are usually far more effective to bring us to the godly maturity that he so desires for each of us. Isn't that true? We learn more through the tough times than we ever learn through the easy times. And just stepping back for a second, thinking about the church and where we are in the West. Think about the church behind the Iron Curtain and the church in the Middle, our Middle East and some of the Eastern countries where it's illegal. And what's happened? The church has strengthened and flourished. And in one sense, you could say, well, the devil tried to crush out the church by stamping it out of existence in those places, and it failed miserably. In the West, he tried a different approach. He tried to get, gave it everything it wanted. And so the church in the West now is weak and failing and needs to be called to repentance of sin and faithfulness to God. God has taken the church in those other countries through difficult times, and it's strengthened and grown. And brothers and sisters, in your life and mine, it's absolutely true. God takes you through difficult circumstances that you might grow in maturity. God works. God is always at work providentially to deliver us from our present level of sanctification to a greater godliness and a deeper sanctification. God is always at work to deliver us from our present level of knowing the Lord to a greater, more intimate relationship with Christ as our Savior, our Lord, and our friend. Paul in prison rejoiced in the Lord and rejoiced in his loss of all things for the surpassing excellency of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. He lost everything. I wonder how we would cope with that. It'd be a test, wouldn't it? How well would we cope if we lost everything like dear Paul? And he rejoiced in prison. His one goal, his driving desire of his life as he was in prison was that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That's what he wanted. Paul in prison rejoiced in the Lord. He rejoiced in the loss of all things compared to the surpassing excellency of knowing the Lord. His desire at that moment was not to complain of his losses, but to desire more of Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings. Listen, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters in Christ, God is at work in you, around you, in your relationships and circumstances to deliver you from present lukewarmness to a future white-hot godliness and passion for him. And so are we willing to endure the heat as it's turned up, as God providentially brings it about in our lives, that we might be delivered from this state to a a deeper knowledge, a deeper relationship, a greater passion and desire for Christ, a greater obedience to Christ. Notice, fourthly and finally, God's deliverance is gracious. I mentioned this last week, so I want to just simply reinforce it as we close. God was under no obligation to deliver Paul from his particular situation. And God is under no obligation to deliver us from our situations. And God always speaks and acts according to the counsel of his own will for his glory and for our good. I'm going to keep saying that over and over and over again. As long as I have a breath to preach, God works for our good and his glory. And so we must recognize that God's deliverance of Paul was grace. 
unreserved, sorry, undeserved kindness and compassion towards his servant. You know, we love the old hymn, don't we? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was driving home here last night from uh, the work day, feeling pretty tired. And again, that thought came across my mind. I've thought about it before. What does grace sound like? You ever stop to think about that? What is how, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. He could have said, amazing grace, how sweet the attribute of God. It wouldn't work for the rhyming part, but, you know. Amazing grace, how sweet the experience. He could have written that, but no, that's not what he wrote. He wrote, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We in our Western affluent Christian culture highly influenced by the prosperity gospel, which we would never preach, but sadly, most of us practice it a lot. We think of God's grace in terms like these. God was so gracious to me because, you know, he gave me a parking spot right close to the door. Would God be any less gracious if you gave you a parking spot 400 meters down Corrigan Road and you walked, had to walk for 15 minutes to get here? I know in my case, it would be very gracious to give me a parking lot way on the other side of Danielong and get me to walk over. God was so gracious to me. He gave me a great pay rise. Isn't God's grace good? Would God be any less gracious if he gave everybody in the company a pay rise and not you? Maybe there was something that God wanted to teach you. Listen, God's grace is his kindness, his compassion, his goodness towards us to bring us to saving faith in Christ, depending on Christ alone for salvation, and to bring us to a greater Christian maturity. God's immense grace is often neither painless or pleasant. It's often very painful and very unpleasant. But when we recognize that God is working through every circumstance to bring us to a greater, deeper faith in him. Grace all of a sudden feels and sounds different, doesn't it? So what does grace sound like? To the apostle Paul standing in the temple in that moment, grace would have been the sound of a sudden shout, men of Israel, come to our ad. This is the man who preaches against the law, our people, and this place. Grace would have been the sound of the rush of feet and the shouts of his fellow Jews as they rushed from the temple and all around the city, angry shouts, pushing, shoving, dust being thrown into the air. Grace was the sound of that in Paul's life. Grace was the sound of the heavy temple doors thudding shut, forever shutting out not only Paul, but also the gospel. Grace for Paul was the sound of the crash and stamp of Roman hobnail boots coming down the street towards him. It was God's grace at work to deliver Paul in that moment. Grace is not always painless. Sometimes it's terribly painful. But God was gracious in delivering Paul. Sound of grace was the sound of the voice of the ship's captain demanding to know why Jonah was still sleeping during the storm and why he was not praying and crying out to his God. Grace was the feel of the icy cold water and Jonah sinking down into it only to feel the rough tongue of the great fish swallowing him and the splash of landing in the fish's belly. God was graciously delivering Jonah from his disobedience to obedience, although God still had further work to do in his life. And you see it in the rest of the book. 
Grace was the sound of Paul's voice in front of everybody. You imagine, there he is in the church. Paul and Barnabas, sorry, Barnabas and Peter are sitting on one side, eating all by themselves with the Jews, and all the Gentiles are over there. And in the middle of that, Paul stands up and shouts across, you two, what are you doing? He confronted them in front of them all. You say, why? Because God in grace was delivering them from their hypocrisy at Paul's sharp rebuke. Grace was the sound of the Lord God's own voice, angry over the first sin and disobedience, calling Adam and Eve from a distance. You ever notice that? He didn't come right up to them and begin to speak to them. He called to them from a distance. That's grace. It's tremendous grace. He called out, where are you? I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid, was Adam's answer. God in grace was beginning to deliver them from their disobedient, sinful, and naked state in the garden. The Bible is full of the sounds of God's grace in deliverance. But beloved, of all the sounds of God's grace at work, delivering his people in the pages of Scripture, to me and so many others, the sweetest sound of God's grace at work to deliver us were these sounds. The sound of a scourge as it crashed down on Jesus' back. As the Bible tells us, for by his stripes we're healed. It was a sound of an iron hammer ringing off of iron nails as they were driven down through Jesus' feet and hands into the cross. It's the sound of the cross as it hit the bottom of a hole, thud. It's the sound of our Lord Jesus gasping from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Maybe the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the sound of grace. There's a roar of the great veil, the temple being torn in two from top to bottom as Jesus died. The way into God's presence forever opened for all to enter. It was the sickening sound of a spear being pushed up into Jesus' now dead, still heart to release blood and water for without the shedding of blood. There's no forgiveness of sin. It was the sound of a great circular stone being rolled into the tomb to cover it and then being rolled away those three days later. God in magnificent grace delivered us from the eternal penalty for sin in the fires of hell forever. He did it through the life, the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. In grace, Christ died to deliver you from sin and death and hell. And God in grace didn't stop there. He's still working all through this life we live. Every step we take throughout this Christian life, God is at work to deliver us from a lukewarmness a shallowness of a walk with the Lord into a deeper, greater, more richer relationship with Christ. And often the means of that grace is the suffering and the difficulties we encounter, like Paul and all that went on here and carried on through his life until finally at the end he was taken out to a stump, bent over, and his head was taken off of him. In grace, God delivered him. Brother and sister, my dear friends sitting in this room, If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want to point you to the cross and the sound of grace. Tremendous grace that God had with you. 
to rescue you from his own wrath against your sin, to rescue you from an eternity in hell, to give you life, to give you a hope, hope beyond anything else, to take you through a life that will be difficult and hard, and at times painful because each step of that journey, you are being made more into the image of Christ. To use an illustration I've used probably hundreds of times as a carpenter, but it just, for me, it imprisons the idea in my head. Like a carpenter with a very sharp chisel, he puts it down on the wood and he takes the hammer and he begins to drive the chisel down into the wood to scoop out chunks of wood away from that block of wood that he might shape it more into the image of the design that's in his mind. And God sometimes uses very sharp chisels and very heavy hammer blows to shape us and make us more like the Lord Jesus. And God was certainly doing that in Paul's life all through his life. He's doing it in my life and he's doing it in yours. God delivers us. He delivers us in his faithfulness to us, even though at times it hurts. God's deliverance is timely. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's allowing you to go through something in a certain amount of time for his purposes. So what do we do with all this? We trust him. We keep going. We keep fastening our eyes back on Christ to see what he's doing and respond by faith. God's deliverance is providential. He uses people and places, and circumstances, and all sorts of things in your life. Medical issues. Every time I think of that, I think of Johnny Erickson Tata. I remember years and years ago, I wasn't a believer at that point, but we went to see the movie Johnny in, I think it might have been here or in Canada, I can't remember where, but I remember watching the story of this beautiful young lady. She was athletic, she was a, a gymnast, and she had all everything going for her. Dove into a shallow beach uh, waters snapped her neck as it hit the bottom and forever left in a wheelchair. And that wheelchair was God's grace to her to take a young lady who was not living for the Lord and change her and shape her and make her into a useful tool for his use and his glory. And you know the rest of the story. I have no idea what God's going to take you through. It might be some very hard days ahead of you in your life, but I assure you on the authority of Scripture, God is faithful to you, and he's using every circumstance that you're encountering and enduring to make you more like Jesus, just like this one for Paul. In the end of it all, he was delivered out of the Jews' hands and out of that beating and into chains. And as Victor said, it just stuck in my head all through the week. The irony of it, those Jews, his, uh, sorry, the Gentile Christian friends of Paul were so worried about the trials, the afflictions, and the chains that were awaiting Paul in Jerusalem, but they instead turned out to be the means of God's grace to him. Brothers and sisters, trust the Lord. He's at work. The blow might be heavy and the chisel might be sharp, but he knows what he's doing, and his ultimate goal is to make you into Christ's image. Trust the Lord. Keep going. Don't turn back. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. And then we'll sing the benediction. Would you stand with me, please, as we pray?
Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we give thanks and we praise you again, O God, for the cross. For the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, for the tremendous sound of grace. Grace and mercy towards us. As your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, endured the terrible suffering on the cross. Father, we were being delivered. Father, we give thanks that your love was demonstrated and displayed to us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we give thanks that your grace is still being displayed to us. That you are still working through people that we know and love and some that hate us. To shape us more into Christ's image. To conform us to him. Father, we cry out to you this morning that you would have your way in us this day. You would do the work you have designed for us this day to make us more like the Lord Jesus. Oh God, we pray. We give thanks for your faithfulness. We give thanks, oh God, that your deliverance is timely, exactly according to your perfect timing. Father, we give thanks for your sustaining grace through these difficult days and difficult times. Thank you. Father, we thank you for the immense hope that one day we will be just like Jesus. Lord, we ask you for your blessing and for your help. Lord, if there is one, two, three, even more sitting in this room, standing here before me, Lord, that doesn't know you, Father, I cry out to you, but by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would open the eyes of their understanding to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to repent of sin and be saved. And we ask you these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.